Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you, get your feedback, let us know what you think. Um, we do this for you guys. So uh, a- any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Really psyched to be joined today for another edition of Two Questions to uh, by the one and only Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm happy to be here, and I apologize to everyone that I can't read a calendar. I don't know why I thought that today was the third Tuesday of April, but over the weekend, I was like, hey, people, ask me questions for this podcast, and apparently it really wasn't the week of the month that we normally do this, but by doing it today, I think we can squeeze in another one in May, so that's a side benefit of my poor calendar reading skills. Well, in fairness, I was going to email you too and say, hey, can we do it this Tuesday so that... uh that we can do another one in May, but I, I'm terrible at getting my emails out in time because I, I, I have like this issue with, especially with text messages too. Like I just get so many piled up and then I'm like, well, I really, you know, I just don't want to open them and have to go through all of them. <laughs> and it sounds really, really crappy when you think about it, but like, I don't know, it's just a lot. Like I remember when Victor got traded, I was trying to take a nap and I woke up to uh well, I didn't even fall asleep because my phone started going off when all the Shams reports were going um, and my phone, I had to reset it and just like turn it on airplane mode because I couldn't open things because of how many people were texting me like, oh, what, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know, dude. <laughs> I'm not like I'm not I'm not Woj, but yeah, so it's uh, I, I, I can I can totally feel that. Um, do you want to reintroduce what two questions do I is for any of our new listeners? All right. So, yes, yeah, so if you're brand new to this monthly special It is a reference to Red Porter's classic call when at the end of quarters or when there was two minutes left to play, he would say two minutes, two ha. So we were just riffing off of that for our title. And basically we just ask each other two questions. We don't know what the other person is about to ask. And it just turns into a brainstorming session about what's happened over the last month of Pacers basketball. And then at the end, we have another, you know, very special food corner (laughs) plan for today. So it is, I'm ready to get to it. Yes, me too. Um, I'm almost somehow just I'm as excited for that as I am about talking about basketball. So somehow because I think that our food takes are probably better than our basketball takes. In some ways, being maybe. honest, yeah. it, it very well could be the case. It depends. I don't know. The people keep asking for them, so we must be doing something right with it. But uh, I'll take it. Um, so do you? Do you want me to start? Or do you want to start? I'm actually worried that we're like going to have the same questions. So I'll let you go because Twitter asked me probably 20 questions. So okay, awesome. I have a big pool to pull from. I do as well. Um, so yeah, this first question, I want to tweak it a little bit um, because it comes from my guy, Isaiah, uh, big Blackenstein on, on Twitter. He's awesome. He always uh, engages with our stuff. Super great dude. Um, he was asking me uh, to, to bring up with uh, on this pod, you know, what is, the offensive identity of this team. And I I would say, I mean, I think we've seen that, you know, we, we know they want to drive to the rim, cause rim pressure and, um, and, and get, get open looks out of that. Um, and I think when we see the offense really clicking, that's what's happens. Um, but that brings up for me, uh, what are your thoughts on how the offensive identity is playing out recently? Um, Cause I know the offense has been superb over the last couple of games, 
while also having like the, I think the defense was 20th uh, in that three game stretch. Um, in terms of just looking at the offense and how the identity is shaking out, what are your thoughts on how that applies with the guys on the roster right now? Because I think I, I've talked about this with Tom a couple of times and I've brought it up on solo pods. Um, Karis has been pretty, I don't want to say hit and miss, and it's hard to be critical at all considering what he's coming back from. So I've really tried to hold off any real analysis on him outside of, Hey, he had a good game today. Um, but we've seen a lot, and this was part of the scattered report on him coming out of Brooklyn. He doesn't get all the way downhill sometimes. And I think, you know, when like he, he was a lot better with that in that three game stretch. So that's been a nice upside, but outside of the Detroit game, um, it felt like for the most part, he was taking a lot of those pull-up twos, wasn't fully collapsing the defense. And that's why we saw the offense bogged down at times. Um, and again, part of it's difficult with how many guys are out um, and, and just the way that things have been this season. But I, I wonder what your thoughts are on how the uh, the offense is kind of shaking out uh, with more of what the full roster is going to look like or, or the, the ball dominance hierarchy would look like. Right. So, yeah, a lot to unpack there. Like, generally speaking, to answer his question, I think that this system is pretty predicated on motion. I mean, they mm -hmm. run a lot of their actions are with staggers, with loop series, where you're getting guys moving in a way that, I mean, I talked on a live show yesterday. A big difference between this year and last year would be um, they ran more middle pick and rolls last year and it was with fixed spacing. Now they're running a lot more side pick and rolls, a lot more sideline attacks while they're also having screening action go on the weak side. And there's pluses and minuses to both of those approaches. I think here recently um, it, it's very strange. I mean, this is partially you have to take into account what this season is, I yeah. think, especially post all-star break these last five games when they've only had one big or, you know, even just the game against Minnesota when they only had Goga, um, if I'm going to be blunt about it, I think that San Antonio played some of the worst defense I've seen an opponent play against the Pacers this year. It was year. awful. Yeah. Their communications on a lot of the sideline stuff the Pacers did was really bad. Minnesota had absolutely like no will to defend the actual ball at all until late in the second half. And then, you know, they don't have a great assemblage of defenders to begin with, but it was pretty poor. And uh, Memphis's transition D was completely non-existent the other night. So it's kind of hard to take into account what they're doing, but they are playing at a top five, or I mean, a number one pace over these like last five games. And that didn't get updated yesterday because I was having lots of problems with the NBA stat site. So that might not have accounted for the Memphis game, but that game was played. Oh no, yeah, they were up very there. quick I, I pace. checked yesterday and they were right and, on there. And what's interesting is that a, around the time that the G League bubble opened, I watched like the first week of those G League games and the Mad Ants were playing at a very quick pace, similar to how the Pacers are now. And that's the way all of Bjorkren's teams in the G League played. And I remember people asking like, will the Pacers play at a quicker pace? And I said, I, I feel pretty good about it because when you watch those G League teams play and their approach, they weren't only pushing the ball off their defense. They were also pushing the ball off of makes. And then in the early portion of the season for the Pacers, that wasn't really the case. And it was kind of interesting for me because I'm like, you know, the Mad Ants are running all of the exact same sets as the Pacers. Why isn't this playing out at the NBA level when it is at the G League level? And here, you know, that's what you've seen with the Pacers. They aren't just pushing it up the floor when they're getting a steal. They're pushing it up the floor 
and playing quicker all the way around. And some of that has to do with just playing with greater pace in your half court sets. They -hmm. went through a time through the middle portion of the season where you'd see them run like their double drag connected to a stagger connected to a stagger. If you're not super pristine with that and getting into it where the guys are, you know, really swirling around those actions, then you're kind of just running a bunch of action as fluff and it doesn't really matter because you're not getting them cleanly off the screens and you're not moving quickly enough to force the defense to hit into those screens. So I think that's been a positive, but I take it somewhat with a caveat of I can see that the defense hasn't been the opposing defense hasn't been good. And obviously the Pacers defense has really struggled going back to that San Antonio game. And maybe even before that, I mean, when I was watching the Memphis game to go on a little bit of a side note here, I was like, I can't remember the last time I thought that this defense looked good. Like it had some moments against Orlando and some here and there, but overall, like they're giving up a ton of points. They're down at the bottom and opponent offensive rebounding rate, which is a whole nother topic. But some of the Karis stuff I won't touch on quite yet because I have a plan for that moving forward. But um, right now I would say that the identity is, is getting out in transition, getting as many possessions as possible. And some of that plays into you know, I saw that Jeremiah Johnson at Fox Sports Indiana, I thought made a really good point in a tweet where he basically said, you know, people have wanted the Pacers to play faster for a long time. But then we look at some of the teams that are up there in pace and most of them are below 500. So he, I think he said something along the lines of, I've always struggled like with how important that is and does it lead to success? And my question would be, are the teams that are below 500, below 500 because they're playing fast or they are they playing fast because they're below 500? Yeah. My guess is it's probably the second one where, you know, if your defense is struggling, getting extra possessions really matters. Like getting as many chances at at the basket to outscore your opponent if you're not getting stops is is fairly important. And um, some of the stuff that we've seen with the defense, um, even without, you know, Sabonis or Miles, I think we can see in some regards where both of them have an impact on what the defense is and maybe even not traditional ways that we normally think of especially I think you could see that against Memphis and Chicago, but um, obviously we know what Miles's defensive impact is. But, yeah. Um, just some subtle ways there, but did I answer this question? Yeah. So I actually have a couple of things off that, that I, I thought like, number one, I really agree with what you're talking about with getting out in transition. Um, like, I think it's uh, I know because uh, I was listening, I'm actually going to be on the even odds podcast this weekend. I was listening to yours to, to catch up and, and get an idea of what I'm getting into um, and they talked about, uh, I'm trying to, th- I, I had like something on this. I think they talked about the Kings a little bit and it made me think about, um, that Kings team, um, a couple under years Dave ago Yeager. with Dave, yes, under yeah. Dave Yeager. And like, he wrote a great article on it. And I remember watching that team too. Like they didn't have, oh wait, no. I, okay. So where I was going, like you, I know you don't watch a ton of college basketball or keep up with it. Um, and talking to my friends who do like, the best teams, like you look at like Alabama under Nate Oates, like they are just a four factors team all the way. Like they, they just try and uh, obliterate teams by uh, going full in on efficiency. And it seems like pretty rudimentary when you look at the NBA, but in terms of college, like that is a really, like there are a lot of teams who don't play um, the most efficient brand of basketball, or at least it's just in ways that they could tweak and make things easier. Like I, I go to university of Toledo and they had, I think, the they were top 10 in offense this entire year. And it's not necessarily about talent. Like, they had talented kids, but they just – I think they were first in the country in threes. They were up top 10 in transition. And that parlays into having an awesome offense. And they had the best season of their entire uh, run as a team. Um, 
looking at the Kings, like if you have a really young team, that's not the best defensively, as we've seen, they're still not good defensively. If you have guys who are athletic and you can get out and transition, that's just an easy way to score points. So I think like long story short, like if you're not a good defensive team, you're just not a great team in general. It's the easiest form of offense is by just outrunning people to, to some degree to, to be a little bit reductive. So I agree with that. Um, Oh, I do want to add one oh, yeah, second sure. point that I should have pointed out. Um, I think overall that this the Pacers offense is at the at its absolute best when the team is moving and cutting. Yes. And there's a lot of spaces that Bjorkren provides for that to be within this offense, whether it's just, you know, we run a pistol action on the sideline and, and Edmund Sumner face cuts in front of his guy and goes, or they do a lot of like miles Turner has been great at it all year, but I've seen it more and more out of the wings and the guards where they're going to cut at a 45 degree angle yeah. while the pick and roll is going so that they open up those shots in the corner. Um, just in Memphis, the cutting overall was just pretty superb as it was yes. in the first game against Miami. And that makes a big difference because if you look at the third game against Miami, when they went through like the six minute scoring drought or whatever it was, I had some questions about what lineup was out there at times because, you know, Miami's blitzing. They were mostly doubling off of TJ McConnell. And it's not so much that I had a problem with TJ McConnell being out there, but if you're facing that type of coverage, you need to cut into that space. And the Pacers got really stagnant during that stretch and were glued to the three-point line. So at that point, if you're going to stay glued to the three-point line, when I believe they had TJ McConnell and Edmund and Aaron all out there at the same time with Karras and Sabonis, then you probably just need to play the shooters if they're going to be standing there. Like, And ideally, you would continue cutting, but... Yeah. Um, the Pacers have a really high cut frequency and that doesn't even really account for the cuts that they use that don't lead to direct points or um, what synergy would track. They have a lot of cut assists, but they've gone through spurts this season where they haven't looked for the spots within their own plays that allow for them to do that. But here recently, they, they've been doing it a lot more and better. And I think when you don't necessarily have a lot of top number one scoring options and you're a more balanced starting lineup, that's really important. And I think it will be really important in the playoffs to, to make defenses have to guess exactly what you're doing within your own set plays. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point. I think that was probably my biggest takeaway from the last three games, because as you know, like it was very difficult to, to know what to take away from those games, especially like the Minnesota game was just, um, it was weird on so many regards. Um, but like that first quarter against Memphis, Again, like you mentioned, like their defense. I mean, I've watched Memphis quite a bit this year, and that's the worst I've ever seen their defense play. Um, but also, I mean, the Pacers just played really good basketball. Like you, uh -huh. like you, you've talked about with like the whirling dervishes of cutting, like around Sabonis. That's what we've. It finally felt like we were seeing that in a really consistent stretch. So you take away the good from that. Um, so I, all right, yeah, that the I, I definitely had a second thing that I want to bring up, but I can't remember now. So oh, I am, shouldn't uh, have hopped on it. No, no, you're good. <laughs> I I forgot halfway through telling them my first thing, so you're totally good. But uh, what is what is your first question for me? I mean, I have so many different ways that I could go here. I think we'll just tackle your portion of the question, and in general, most people asked me a lot about opinions on Karras and where he's been and most of these questions I will say came in before the Memphis game mm -hmm. when of course Karras is just like turns into monster Karras against the Grizzlies for some reason which I have some theories on but um, I guess just to sum up you know where at where are you at with Karras and some of his up and down play and what do you see as his best role do you know what you think his best role is moving forward yeah um it's a good question I think 
I've thought about this a lot the last couple of days, and especially looking at the Memphis game. Um, it's tough because of how well he played, but I also think, and I, I don't want to sound reductive uh, to his game and what he does, but I think so much of what, when he, when he's having his really good scoring nights outside, like the Detroit game, he got downhill a ton and was fantastic getting to the rim. And he was really good getting to the rim against Memphis as well. Um, I think that was probably his best overall game as a driver, but a lot of the shots that he was hitting were really well contested, uh, like short mid range pull-ups and, uh, and, and floaters. And for him, those just aren't super consistent shots. Like he's a, uh, he's good at them, but he's not, he's not quite good enough at them to take them at the level that at the frequency that he does, at least just based on all of the prior data we have, like maybe he goes on some elite stretch and starts becoming more of a guy who can hit those at like a 48 or 49% clip. But right now, like just looking at, so if it based on like cleaning the glass from four to 14 feet, he's shooting 40% in Indiana, which is like fine. But in terms of like, what he can do getting to the rim. It's not even about like scoring in general. It's just more like, uh, like we've talked about this, like actually collapsing the defense is, is the huge part of it. Because if you're only going halfway to the rim or, you know, two thirds of the way to the rim, you're not causing the same rotations that you are if you get all the way to the rim. Um, so again, like, I think that's, that's just one aspect of it. I would like to see him get to the rim more because he shoots well there. Like he's got good craft around the rim if he's not forcing things and, um, we've seen him do, he has like really nice wraparound passes from, uh, from when he gets to the baseline. And I've really enjoyed his, like his two man game with Sabonis is growing quite a bit. And more importantly, like when he's able to get all the way downhill, that opens up so much for Malcolm. And I think that's been the biggest aspect of having Karras, um, is Malcolm's play. Like Malcolm's looked fantastic off ball. Um, he's taking like almost eight threes a game, uh, over, I think the last, like, like since the trade deadline. Um, it's just been awesome seeing him get get into that role that he, he looks a lot more comfortable in. Um, and I think overall that's better. Um, with where he's at as a, as a ball handler, like I think he's probably um, – like I think in some regards maybe Malcolm is a little bit better with his reads, but that's just my, my opinion. But I do think Karras has more shake as a ball handler and uh, like he has the ability to make some higher level passes, um, like probably has the best – uh, ability as um, as one of the wings on the team to be that guy, um, but again, like I think a lot of it just comes from getting all the way downhill more. And that's not saying like you have to cut out being a mid a mid range shooter. I think we go too far with that sometimes. But like it's just more about like finding the right balance with it. Um, but I also think I he hasn't done it as much recently. Um, but taking more of the off the dribble threes, like. He had a couple of really good good games of, of shooting from behind screens on pick and roll, and he hasn't done that as much recently. Um, I would like to see him get back to that more because you need that. Like we saw with Malcolm earlier in the year when teams started going under on him and he, he stopped shooting those pull-up threes, that really clogged up the offense, clogged up his individual game um, and forced him into even tougher shots. Karras was actually a pretty solid pull-up shooter from three. I think he's shooting – last time I checked, he was around 34%, which isn't, like, elite, but that's good enough where you can punish defenses for going under on you if you're going to take those shots consistently. But the only issue has been that he is uh, – and the unfortunate trend that has carried over so far is that he's not a good catch-and-shoot player. And I want to look into that more and figure out why that is. I think maybe part of it's footwork or just he's not as comfortable doing it for whatever reason, but – um, point being like, he's the guy who's capable of taking pull up shots from, from, 
from three. He's the guy who I think has the most ability to get downhill and score at the rim while also creating for others. So I think he has to be the lead ball handler right now. Obviously, there's like circumstances where you want Malcolm to run the offense too, but like Malcolm is so much better attacking off a tilted defense. Um, and we've seen that already, like his finishing numbers, uh, not just from three, but at the rim have been a lot better since Karras has been in the lineup. Um, so ultimately, I think I really like um, what Karras's role is looking like. And I think it's just going to be more of finding him off ball too. Like he's had a little bit more as a cutter recently, but I would like to see um, more come up for him off ball, maybe using him a little bit like how, how they would run stuff for TJ last year. Like instead of making everything come out of pick and roll for him, run him off of a cut, like run him off of a couple of screens to get him the ball. And it's not like it doesn't happen, but just, just more of it. But um, hopefully that answers your question. I feel like just given that Karis didn't play basketball for a month and a half and had cancer, like I think a lot of that gets negated and I get frustrated seeing uh, people go off on him and say, Oh, well, this guy, this guy sucks. This guy, this, this guy, that, um, like th there's gotta be some context and leeway with it. And I've been, uh, pretty, pretty happy with, with how he looks so far. I'm just glad that he's on court and healthy. Um, the only thing I would say though, is the defense has been a little bit better recently. The, uh, the off ball defense has been a little bit rough for him so far. That was yeah. a really long winded response, but that's uh, that I've, I've been thinking about it a lot. Right. So I probably have a little bit different opinion in a couple spots Okay. just because, um, and I completely agree with you. Like I have no idea what he feels like in his body, where he feels that conditioning wise, if there's just games. I mean, I thought like the game in Denver, for instance, pretty early on in his return, that was just a little bit of a weird outing where he wasn't heavily involved in the offense. And I kind of wondered like, does he not quite feel himself with how many games they had played on the West coast and being in altitude and, and how the entire team kind of looked in that particular game too. But mm -hmm. so I do think I've been hesitant as well to um, really delve super deep into what he's doing, because I think he deserves the benefit of like the human element of all of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he, his career, he very much loves the non-restricted area. That's been a <laughs> developing trend for him. I think, at the number I looked at, he's taken 59 shots in the restricted area versus 52 in the non-restricted area. He likes to, you know, come off the pick and roll, decelerate, get into his guy, and then pogo stick up for a shot. That's kind of what his game is. And I do think to an extent, like, I don't know why we're so quick, and I'm not including you in this, but just generally speaking, like, why we have to look for specific answers for why any player goes off. Like sometimes yeah. it can just be that a guy got hot, like, mm -hmm. and the San Antonio game, I don't really think we need to make that about whether Sabonis was there or not and vice versa in the Memphis game. Like, I mean, if the San Antonio game Karis having the amount of points he had was because Sabonis wasn't there, then why did he go off against the Grizzlies? You know, uh, um, that type of stuff I don't really get. And some of the coverages have been different across defenses that I don't really think we need to make it about whether they're playing spread pick and roll or five out, especially because they play five out a lot with Sabonis. It's just that Sabonis is the playmaker, which is what we saw in Memphis. But with some of the lead ball handler stuff that I see in like some of the people that sent me questions, like Karis hasn't been the lead ball handler in any of these games. Like if you look at the time of possession, that's been TJ McConnell or Brogdon and all of them, except for, I believe, a bit against San Antonio. It was close, but yeah, I mean, even or in Orlando, the time of possession was McConnell 4.2 Brogdon four, Levert 
2.2. And that was with Brogdon playing significantly less minutes, which I do think is a benefit of all this, that what the minutes breakdown has been of lately, if you can trust Karras a bit more in a playmaker role, and then Brogdon's not having to load up on the types of big minute games that he was earlier in the season, I think is highly beneficial, but I mean, Brogdon's still largely operating as this team's primary ball handler and, and uh, point guard. It's just that they initiate the offense with Brogdon and then he'll relocate for a catch and shoot three, which I think is great. Like he's yeah. proven that he's good in a spot up role, but it's still bringing Karras off and off ball action and getting him to an on ball one. I mean, against Chicago and San Antonio, I would say, because you're not running some of the offense through Sabonis, they really just relied on running like nonstop double drags and Spain pick and rolls and hoping that, you know, against Chicago, they weren't really that great on either end of the floor, but hoping they could do that, especially after Miles went down with the ankle injury, keeping it a little bit more simple when Gogo is on the floor. So I think some of that matters, but I will say that I think what I've noticed, if we're going to look for a reason why some of his efficiency has been up and down, I think he's been a lot more, uh, and this isn't the prevailing opinion that I've seen on Twitter, but I think he's been more comfortable against teams that have dropped their bigs deep, to be honest. Yeah. When he comes off the pick and he has that space to manipulate because of where he likes to get to his spots, he's had more space versus, you know, we want to point out that the team didn't score a lot of points against Charlotte. Well, Charlotte was switching all the off ball actions and switching one five. So then he was attacking the big, or he was trying to attack Gordon Hayward and he wasn't getting to the rim all that well in isolation at the end of the game against Memphis, he scored that big basket in isolation with them cleared out without a screen. But when he's coming directly out of switch as where a little bit more of his struggle is. I looked up his numbers in ISO right now is about 0.4 points per possession. He's six of 28 in isolation. So the only people that have scored very efficiently at all for the Pacers in isolation is Brogdon, who's at about right at a point per possession. And then Sabonis is the only person that's shot over 50%. So I think that some of that context matters why they lean on them the two of them sometimes like if you're playing a switching defense the Pacers just don't have a lot of guys who can go get their own shot now I'm not saying Karras isn't going to get there and that he isn't going to continue to find that type of feel with new teammates and adjusting to a different system and the more he builds up his conditioning but right now that's been a little bit of a weakness and I think that's shown up in some of his up and down efficiency but also just normalize the take that sometimes people just don't make shots like yeah Sometimes you just come out and you have it going and in the types of shots that he takes, as you bring up, if you don't get to the rim a lot, it's harder for you to weather some of those storms at the free throw line. Like you're not making it up that way. So I think there's going to be nights where he's going to load up on points and there's going to be other nights where he might have a four of 14 scoring outing, which, and defensively, yes, absolutely. Like there's moments where I question, like that was a really, you know, kind of space cadet off ball, uh, coverage or he'll give up a switch in a place where the Pacers wouldn't normally give up a switch. He gets snagged and then he just dies on the switch and doesn't try to get yes. back into the picture. And also there's one transition possession where I do not blame miles at all. I thought he was going to turn into the anger character from inside <laughs> out and transition. And there was a three letter phrase that I'm pretty sure you can read on his lips that he turned around and yelled at Karis. And it, I mean, it, it was a mistake. Miles called out that he had ball and Karis did not, uh, get back and cover the person that was running the lane, which was, which was his uh, assignment. But I mean, I just, I look at it as, you know, is it the perfect fit between Brogdon and Karras? I think having them take turns is working. It looked the best that it's looked against Memphis, Mm -hmm. but I think it's important that 
you know, even I don't know where the Pacers are going to finish out in this playoff race, if they're in the play-in tournament, who they're playing in the play-in tournament. I don't know any of that, but I do think there's a lot of value in these last 19 games and evaluating exactly how all of these various pieces fit together and what particular holes you made it need to address. Cause maybe it turns out to, you think that Karis is going to be awesome and a point Levert role as a sixth man. And then maybe you're making a different decision in the starting lineup. I'm not saying that's what I think right now, but that might be where you end up depending upon how he and Brogdon continue to mesh. Or maybe like we say, maybe it turns into Karis is doing great against all these different coverages and you, there's more reason to seed him more time of possession. And he's a lead ball handler. Like I think some of it's semantics, especially in this type of offense, which how much it's dictated. I mean, just like with Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Fleet in Toronto, both of them did a lot of the handling there and the stagger offense that they run feeds into that ability for both of them to play downhill. But my main answer is I don't know yet. And I think that's where I am with a lot of the stuff on the Pacers. Like I'm fully willing to admit that I don't know. That's how I feel as well. It's just, it's very hard to have a real read on on what to think on this team. Um, And I guess, okay. I have a couple points off that. I mean, number one, I would say I just clearly, I mean, I don't, I don't read the game as well as you do. I still am learning a lot. Um, as we were talking about before I got on, I'm, I mean, I've learned a ton from you. Um, in looking at, like, talking about lead ball handlers, I think, like, who would you – I mean, would you rely more on Malcolm or, or – or maybe not rely. Like, trust is also a weird word to use. But, like, who, who are you trusting more to, um, to put the initial bend in the defense, like Malcolm or Karras? Um, because I think maybe that's how I was looking at it. Um, I, I, I should have looked at the uh, the numbers a little bit more carefully before I got on, but like in terms of looking at lead, lead ball handling, I think that's more what I'm looking at. Like who is, who is going to be trusted on to, to try and put that initial tilt in the defense? Like, how would you look at that? I mean, yeah. I mean, Karras's passes out of the pick and roll have yielded good, good points, good efficiency mm-hmm. for the Pacers. Obviously Brogdon has been doing it longer but I'm not as sour on the point Brogdon experience. And I'm not saying that. Oh you yeah. I'm not like, I'm not I, no, sour. I'm not saying that you are at all, but I do think How that, dare you? Yeah. that there seems to be like a general trend that like the point Brogdon experience hasn't worked. And I, I don't think that I'm there. Like even with the unders, I've brought that up a lot, but like Brogdon isn't shooting bad on pull-up threes, like 36% or whatever he's at, isn't a bad mark. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think it's so much about him that teams were ducking under to be completely honest, or yeah. that they're doing it against Karis. I think it's because, the motion that the Pacers run can be very hard to handle. And if you duck under, you're neutering the pick and roll with Sabonis as the screener, and you're making it harder for them to run their motion offense. Like, I think that's more the trade-off and that, you know, if Brogdon makes some of those threes, the team is, the opposing team is willing to live with that. Like, it isn't so much like a direct jab at Brogdon as it is the general what the Pacers are. They put a ton of pressure on the rim. So you want to take that away. And that's the best way to do it, which is kind of ironic with some of the stuff the Pacers do defensively that they want to pressure the rim so badly, but then they don't use the unders that work against them to make <laughs> them not be able to pressure the rim. But that's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, yeah, I mean I I think that Karis certainly is the more creative of the two. Like you can give him a simple double drag and he, he can do more with it, whether it's splitting between the two screens, what he's, everything he does is just so disorienting. Like I said earlier, he looks like he plays basketball on a pogo stick. So to defend him has to be very hard to predict which herky jerky way he's going to go. But from a playmaking standpoint, and I do think like overall, I, I won't shy away from this. I think I said it whenever they are playing the heat, like his ability to pass out of the blitzing and the traps is better than it, than Victor Oladipo was in his all-star yeah. season. 
like Victor really struggled with that. And Karras doesn't have a problem getting the ball out and, and, and dealing with that as much as what Victor did. But I think that there's spots both with Miles and Sabonis where I've gotten a little bit frustrated where they are open on the roll and he doesn't even look for the pocket pass at all. Like there's one where Miles had his guy totally pinned behind him, like waiting for the pass in the lane. And and Karras is like, I am going to shoot this no matter what. And he had some moments like that in Orlando too, where he was really shot hunting. And I don't really get those vibes quite so much. Like sometimes Brogdon will drag out a possession and be like overly deliberate with it but isn't necessarily like just hunting a shot. So I would need to see a little bit more balance on that front from Karras, but then he also has stretches. Like I said earlier, the third quarter against the bulls, he just ran Spain pick and rolls with Goga and Doug over and over again. And they got like four different reads out of it and scored out of them. So um, I pushed back a little bit the day when the reporting came out that the Pacers were yes, we listening to offers with Brogdon and Sabonis and not because, I mean, it's Kevin Pritchard's job. He should be listening to offers on everybody on the roster. Like that's what you do as a general manager. But the fact that the thinking was that they were that confident in point Levert after like five games played, like, and again, that might be the case. It might turn out that you want Karis Levert to be your lead ball handler and to be setting up the offense and you shift Brogdon completely into an off ball role. I don't know, but I don't think that the Pacers would fully know that that's something they wanted to do yet, especially with where some of his efficiency has been. But um, I'm not completely on board for that yet, but I understand wanting to use, wanting to give Karis as many ball screens as possible and I do think that his facilitating can help this team. Certainly they don't have a lot of facilitators and playmakers. So the less pressure or the more pressure you can take off of Brogdon and Sabonis, I think is all the better, especially if it leads to them playing less minutes, like it has here of late. I mean, yeah. Sabonis had foul trouble, but I appreciate that they're playing less minutes. Me too. Yeah. I think, so the last thing I would even say on that is uh, I would just push back to the questions a little bit. And I think when you look at this team top down and especially imagining TJ back, like I, I I think the way that the offense is going to work and the way that Nate Bjorkren maybe envisions it is like you don't necessarily have a lead ball handler. Like you're going yeah. to have somebody who's going to, of course, try and take a possession at the end. But like you have four or five guys on the court who can be a, a, a willing and capable scorer at any point. And that's the whole point of what the Pacers are doing with this roster. You don't have a superstar level player. You have really good players and they're all capable of getting their own shot. If they can get to their spots or get set up in the right way. And I think it's not necessarily about having a lead ball handler. It's about just trying to have an egalitarian offense and getting everyone there. And that's, it's not easy to do as we've seen in in some regards. And it's been a little bit herky jerky at times, but I think that's the vision. No, and that's definitely the benefit. I mean, you saw that against the Heat when Brogdon was having to constantly run pick. I mean, he was running most of it. They just don't have, they didn't have a lot of ball handlers and playmakers. And I think both of us talked about the benefits they would have had if they had multiple ball handlers where they could have involved other people in the screening actions to target other defenders. So absolutely. And I mean, and as you say, Bjorkren prior to the season talked about wanting to push the ball up in transition. Whoever gets the ball takes it and goes. And when you have Karis out there that's more plausible just like in the lineups that they're I mean they're doing a lot more with three guard lineups too I mean at the end of the games a lot of times it's TJ McConnell Brogdon and Karras I mean some of it's turned into more TJ McConnell show which once again leads me to think like I said like most of the time Karras's time of possession hovers where Victor's was at at about four point two to 4.2 minutes of possession in a game and usually Brogdon and, and McConnell are logging more 
-hmm. think there's a little bit more trust there so far, but I think that that could shift. But yeah, as you say, I mean, he definitely wanted there to be multiple ball handlers in this offense and you're closer to that with Karras than you were without him. Definitely. Um, all right. Well, my next, unless you have anything else you want to add, no, my, no. my next question for you um, would be, it's, it's a little bit broad and, and open um, and more of a, an opinion type thing, but how do you feel where we're at with this season um, and, and where the Pacers are at compared to where they were at last year um, around the same time? So I guess, I mean, there would be probably about 70 games in, well, I mean, gosh, what am I thinking? Never mind. This this time last year, nobody was playing basketball. Um, it feels like so long. But uh, just in regards, like, okay, like I, I talked about this on, on the pod recently, looking at this team, you know, through 52 games compared to the team last year through 52 games. Um, so they were, what, like 30, 30, uh, 32 and 19 or something like that this time last year. And um, the team is obviously not there this year. But I think in some regards – I personally feel a little bit like I can see where the team is going maybe more than they did last year, but I, I, I want to have that discussion. Like I know a lot of people have struggled with um, like the fan base has really struggled with um, having a losing record and being on the outside, looking in to the playoffs. And obviously, I mean, they're in the play in right now, but I don't consider that playoffs personally. Um, how, how do you feel about that personally? Or how do you, analyze that because I have really struggled trying to convey that to uh to people who are frustrated right so I had a couple of people ask me similar things along the lines of let me pull it up here this was one of the questions um what are the most evident ways the team isn't on the same page is this team actually better than their record says or are they like a quote-unquote bad team even if they're on the same page and then another person, lots of injuries and a backup power forward would have helped, but we're basically an okay situation or are the Pacers just kind of lousy. And I don't think that they're, I wouldn't term them as bad or lousy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think I look at, I don't want to look at it, but I do um, some of the comparisons between Nate McMillan and Nate Bjorkran. And I, I oftentimes find myself asking in my head, if Nate McMillan was still the coach, which I don't think was a possibility. I mean, obviously there's stuff going on in the locker room that you and I don't know about. There was, they felt that they needed to make a change there, but just thinking strategically, if he was still the coach, would the Pacers have a better record than they do right now? And would that have been a good or a bad thing? And the one thing that Nate Bjorkren doesn't have that Nate McMillan did last year is Nate McMillan managed a ton of injuries last year, obviously yeah. um, throughout his tenure, he did but it was only one game that he didn't have with both TJ Warren and Victor Oladipo and Nate Bjorkren has had, I believe over 20 where he didn't have TJ Warren and, or Victor Arcaris. So those two positions are very important in today's modern NBA. And in defense of the front office, there's definitely a hole at the four spot. There was a hole at the four spot last year, but heading into the season, I think they had every reason to believe miles Turner is our starting four he's very good and we can shift TJ Warren down to the four who is also very good. And Justin held his own decently well at backup bench four. So I think they thought that they could man those minutes. I don't think they ever probably even considered in their heads that Jeremy lamb was going to be playing minutes at the four, you know, and, and we can, you know, parse through whether the Jakar signings and the Keelan Martin signings helped them really fill that positional need maybe some more than what somebody else at the end of the roster might have. But again, that's like an end of the roster bench role. Like, is that going to make a huge difference in what your record is? 
I don't know. But I do think that if Nate McMillan was coaching, there would be a steadier product. I think that defensively, we wouldn't be seeing some of the stuff that we're seeing, especially here recently. Like, I mean, let's face it. A lot of the times, a lot of the criticism comes from, well, you can't defend with two bigs on the floor. Well, they haven't had two bigs on the floor going back to the game against San Antonio and the defense has been bottom barrel against bad teams. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. Like they're not playing a murderer's row here. And I think one game that I would point out is the game against Chicago and like this, like forget whatever Sabonis's role on the team, but you look in that first half and Vucevic completely changed that matchup for the Pacers. Like you could see early on that they've moved away now from doubling the post. And that speaks to another approach of Bjorkren's where I feel like they kind of get into autopilot with whatever coverages they're going to be. And everybody knows I've harped on that. They haven't been good at doubling the post this year, but my main criticism hasn't so much been with that as a whole, as it is. I don't understand like early on Julius Randall, for instance, when they're playing the home game against the Knicks, Sabonis was guarding him straight up and he only scored in the post like once against Sabonis and yet they were double teaming him every time and he was just carving them up off the pass they made like I don't remember how many threes off his passes in that game and my opinion was live with whatever he gets out of the post and quit doubling and giving the Knicks wide open threes because he is a superior passer if you're playing Jonas Valanciunas in Memphis who has passed on approximately 13 percent of his post-ups I think it's okay to go ahead and send the double team especially against Memphis's shooting and, and test and see how that turns out instead of like giving Jonas a 30 and 20 game or whatever he ended up having. And then also the constant need to why were they going over nonstop against John Morant again, clear out at half court when Jonas Valanciunas is a screener. But back to the Chicago game, they don't want to double the post anymore. They generally don't in most situations. Even when they got mismatches against Jonas with Justin, they didn't double the post. And they want to stay home at sh- on shooters more. So they're kind of an autopilot with that, regardless of what the hub is doing, whether he's going to be a, a good passer or not. So they come out in 2-3, and then the 2-3 just gets uh, just destroyed by Thad in the middle. <laughs> like, yep. just picked apart. Then they go box and one in the minutes when Zach Levine's out there, and the box and one doesn't operate much better. And then at one point, in a very extremely rare sighting, they pivoted to 3-2, And then automatically Thad right away is like, oh, they're in three, two. I'm going to set a cross screen and go post up Doug McDermott and then draws a foul. Like it felt like Chicago was much more like we know exactly, okay, you made this adjustment. We're going to adjust and make this and and out counter your counter. Whereas the Pacers were kind of just more grasping with straws. And that's without the person that everyone mainly blames for the defensive issues. Sabonis did not play one minute in that game and the defense had major issues. And I will say on the rebounding front, the rebounding thing is not a question of a matter of who's a better rebounder between Miles and Sabonis. They gave up 24 freaking offensive rebounds in, in Memphis and Miles wasn't even playing. But it is a question of this. Because of how their system is and because they pressure up on the perimeter so much and give up so many odd man advantages, Miles is then having to contest a ton of shots. Those are not rebounds he's going to get if he yeah, has to contest exactly. that. Just like it wasn't going to be the case when you're going over against John Morant, clear at half court, and Sabonis has to contest that. He's not going to get that rebound. So then Jonas Valanciunas is just living on – I mean, there was 30 combined putbacks in that game. So it's more a question to me of who do I trust if Miles has to contest shots to collect them, Sabonis or Jeremy Lamb and the other pieces? Like – I trust Sabonis to clean up for that 
more than the other people in the Chicago game, even for the reason that at least in the Memphis game, they only got outscored despite how many ridiculous offensive rebounds they gave up. They only got outscored by seven in second chance points because they were generating their own putbacks, whether that was Doug or Justin on the great putback dunk or Sabonis or whoever it was. But my point to all of this is, is that you look at that Chicago game and I'm not sure that all of that stuff would have happened if Nate McMillan was coaching. Like, I understand the thought processes behind it, and we've said this before. You might get into a matchup in the play-in tournament where you want to be able to play those types of defense, but part of the reason they were having to play those types of defense in that Chicago game was because of holes they have on the roster. Like, as you know, you Thad was punishing Edmund in the post. He punished Doug in that particular possession in the post. He got position against Justin in the post. Like they don't have a clear, you know, silver bullet at the four spot Mm -hmm. and they don't have a great answer for how they're defending post-ups this year. That's why they rank dead last in the category. They rank dead last in and containing spot up opportunities. So you see in that game where Chicago makes, you know, that trade and it puts them in a different position where I can't necessarily blame all that on, injuries and maybe you make up for some of it in different ways if you have tj warren scoring available but um i don't think that they're a bad team but i do think that like using that game as a microcosm shows some of the lingering weaknesses that you know obviously rebounding was an issue under nate mcmillan like i i shouldn't ignore that but i think that they would have been a little bit better prepared to how to mask some of their weaknesses defensively in that game if he's out there, because one other point that I have here listed for that, I'm glad that you asked this question is I don't know what's going on, but like the last three or four games, they don't seem like they know what they want to give up on the pick and pop at all. Yeah. Like, and this will parlay into one of my questions later, but like, are you willing to give the shooter that shot? Like teams do against miles sometimes. Like, are you just going to live with what the person shoots from three are you trying to contain the drive and you're going to send a guy stunning over to the pick and pop? Like you can see it when they're playing that they don't quite know what they're doing. And like, even in Orlando, it wasn't even that Mo Bamba hit a bunch of threes. He only hit one, but that led to some drives because they were playing higher and looked confused about what they were doing until TJ McConnell came out and then they were peel back switching, which would be my preferred method of dealing with it against certain opponents, maybe not against Busevich. But um, just another thing where I don't think that they would not be on the same page to that extent if Nate was coaching, but you also wouldn't be as experimental. And then, you know, that kind of brings up the question of, you know, Milwaukee, for instance, does a lot of experimenting this year. You can see that, that they're trying different things on defense, but they also have more talent than the Pacers. So they're going to get into the playoffs in spite of that experimentation. And that experimentation may play dividends in playoff in playoff series for them this season in ways that it didn't last year because they weren't doing it. The Pacers are doing a lot of experimentation, but will that cost them being in the playoffs? Like, cause I think that you can probably say that like one game, I would certainly point out the wizards game. Do you think they lose that wizards game? If Nate McMillan is coaching? Um, definitely not. No, um, I don't think that's so. Like, either. The, that, that's been the biggest difference this year. Like, I mean, those were the games where you knew last year, um, not that I, I wouldn't, it's a little reductive to moose stop. It's a little moose was very upset by the wizards loss clearly. Um, <laughs> but I think like looking at those games, like last year, I could chalk those up as, okay, I know they're probably going to win this by, you know, eight to 10 points, you know, and, uh, they just always came out ready to play those kinds of games. And I think, um, 
it's not like cut and dry just like that. Um, right. Again, this season is just so different. Exactly. And I, I think I always look at too, and this is not to say that I think that I'll be careful with my wording here. I don't at all think that the, the team or front office quote unquote punted on this season, but I think a no, lot of people tend so. to uh, not take into account the fact they were playing really well with Victor before they yeah. traded him, but they, they knew what they were getting into by making the trade for Karras. And I think, um, that's led to more experimentation. I mean, you and I talked quite a bit about how we were frustrated about like Ed and Goga not playing to start the year. They have been playing a ton recently. You've seen some of the development that's happening. Like it's not that they're not trying to make the playoffs or anything like that. They clearly are. Otherwise they wouldn't have made some of the moves they have and and done some of the things that they have. Um, But I think it's just important to note, like, Hey, you know, this team is trying to experiment and, uh, find different ways of doing things and it doesn't always look pretty i don't always agree with everything that happens but that's what they're trying to do differently from last year and i I think it's maybe not going to end up uh leading to more success this year but i think they're really trying to build for next year maybe that's not enough for some people or that's frustrating to some people but uh, there has to be some kind of happy medium and balance with it because what i mean it just brings up the question like is it more valuable to beat the crap out of the wizards on a random game in the third week of March, or is it more important to build towards being able to make the second round of the playoffs next year? I I don't, I don't know. And and we'll see how some of that plays out. I mean, I certainly, I understand why they decided to move on from Nate McMillan. I'm not making the argument that, you know, they should have retained him. I don't know. I mean, there's just so much we don't know about coaching that goes into it. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, the interpersonal dynamic and, and managing, personalities and and everything else that has nothing to do with x's and o's but the one thing is is and i think we can question like and i understood where they were coming from like we want to try things so we're not doing them in the first time in the playoffs you know nate mcmillan they didn't switch at all they came out in uh, game two against the celtics were switching everything and they weren't very good at it because they had no experience doing it but they thought they they needed to do it and then you weren't really prepared so i get where the pacers are coming from i'm just questioning you know yeah i'm not really like you're not gonna hang a banner for beating the wizards but you might have a better chance of making the playoffs if you beat the wizards and and so much of their play has been up and down and i do feel like there are games where like and you can point to things from the players too and what you said certainly matters that you know this season is incredibly weird and there are nights not just the pacers other teams across the league there's been a lot of blowouts in general and that it just looks like a team doesn't have it like they just look like you know we've played three games and four nights and we've been traveling and we have all these covid protocols that we have to adhere to and we, we just look like we don't have anything to give in this particular game and i i want to be sensitive to that but there have been some losses that I felt like, okay, but what if they didn't basically hand Russell Westbrook a vintage Russell Westbrook yeah. game? And yep. and that's what's interesting about it because I, I want to be definitely careful because some people like, I thought that Nate Bjorkren was going to be adaptable or make adjustments. I'm like, he's made a lot of adjustments. Like I can point to tons of them. Like even with just with how they set their two, three zone from the time that I wrote that article, they're not setting it exactly the same way. They weren't good at, at covering the high paint flash and they were leaving like a massive crater there. And then midway through the season, they decided, Hey, we're going to match up on those paint flashes and you can see them doing it. I don't know that it's exactly worked super well, but that is an adjustment. Or just like I said, they're no longer doubling the post for the most part. They didn't double Kristaps Porzingis. They didn't double Jonas Valanciunas. They didn't start doubling Vucevic until the second half when he had just completely ripped them up. Mm. And then he carved them up off the pass anyways. But um, you can see various things with the defense that they're willing to do. It just feels like, whatever adjustment they're on 
that's going to be the adjustment regardless of which opponent they're playing. Yes. So, like, it's, it's just funny to me that like, even against Chicago, you're willing to play literally five different types of defense and a half, but you're playing the wizards or you're playing John Morant and you're not willing to try going under, especially in a game when you don't have miles Turner. Like we know what miles Turner brings putting a lid on the rim you know you don't have him out there. So why don't you make it easier for Sabonis to be able to stay home on Valanciunas and just attempt to duck under under the screens? Like I know that Jaw is very good at making people guard him. He's probably one of the most creative finishers in the entire NBA, but um, I I don't understand why they won't try some of those types of coverages, but um, that's a little bit frustrating for me. But to your point, yeah. I mean, we do need to correct, or I do, I wasn't a big fan of the fact that Goga and Edmund and some of the other people that they weren't playing deeper into the roster. Cause that's what they had indicated, or at least I felt they had indicated prior. Oh to- no, they had indicated I'll, I'll, I'll punch that one open. They had, they had talked about both Nate and Kevin Pritchard had talked about in the opening press conference. We want to get these guys minutes. We want to play Goga more than last year. And I mean, I, I wrote about this at the beginning of the year too, as did you, like, I'm not sure where those minutes are coming from, but it's nice that they're talking about it. And, um, yeah, so I didn't mean to cut you off, but I remember like, I, oh man, that drew so much ire for me at the beginning. I'm like, okay, well, if, if they're not going to play, then don't play them or, or, right. or just say that you're not going to play them, but, but don't say that you're going to play them and then not like, it just, it was, it was very confusing at the beginning and I, hopefully I don't know. Well, and run your top that, two so. guys into the ground while exactly. you play people big minutes. But as we say, I think if we're going to criticize people, we also need to give them credit and praise if, if they make a correction to something. 100%. And, Goga is getting those minutes. Edmonds getting minutes. Obviously some of the injuries have played into it, but Aaron's back in the rotation somewhat now and Brogdon and Sabonis haven't been playing as many minutes. I think some of that's probably easing them back from their own injuries as well, but there's been a reduction in there. And I think that it's important to point out that like, Hey, he's doing this and it's, it's going pretty well, but we went off on a lot of tangents on that one. Is it my question or is it your it is, question? It is your question. Okay. So since we kind of covered a lot of the other stuff that people asked, let's just talk about Goga in general. Oh, yes. Where are we at at Goga? Somebody, I believe, talked about Goga's block rate and then asked, like, is it realistic that you could use Goga similarly to how Miles is being used? Like, is his defense comparable to Miles, I guess? Like, and not that he's like a defensive player of the year candidate, but you you get where I'm going. Yeah, definitely. I've really enjoyed Goga. Um, just seeing his development and his growth and his confidence. Um, like I think uh, you could make the case that he's probably a better. Oh no, I'm not going to go there. I mean, he's close to like, you can see the idea that he might be a better shooter than miles in theory. Um, like his shot just looks more comfortable. Um, it's smoother. And not that this, I mean, miles has been fantastic from three over the last month and a half. Um, after really struggling in in uh, in February and in, in the yeah, tail, much better, beginning of much March, much better here recently. Um, but uh, I I mean I think he's probably a better shooter than Domas right now. Uh, and that's not even what you're asking. You're asking about defense, but that's just one of the things that sticks out. Like seeing him, he's taken four threes per game over the last three, which was awesome to see. Uh, the defense, uh, I get the blocks, but I think this is where, and I try to explain this a lot of times when I go on other podcasts for for people are interested about the Pacers you're just talking about national stuff like what makes Miles such a good defender is not the blocks like the blocks are nice and he's fantastic at them um but I think you know I was talking who did I talk to this about um I was talking to one of my friends in Utah about Rudy Obert 
uh, like there's a case that Miles might be a better pick and roll defender than Rudy. Like he's so mobile on the perimeter, and and this Rudy Gobert is probably a defensive player of the year this year. Just to be completely honest, like he's uh, he's just a tick better than Miles. He it, maybe even a little bit better than that. Like he's so impactful. But what Miles is so good at is like he can neutralize those two on ones that he gets put in, and there are very few guys who can do that. Which I think is sometimes a hindrance to, to Domas because I think Domas is a better defender than he gets credit for. He's still not a great defender. Um, but he gets put in those two-on-ones because the help defense is just not there sometimes, and it should be. Um, but you don't see it as often with Miles because Miles is a- able to play those. And I don't think Go is even close to that level yet. Like, the blocks are nice. I think he's uh, asserted himself as a legit rim protector. The fouls are still a thing like I mean it's like when Miles was first coming up like Miles was a fouling machine um and he's gotten a lot better at that of course but I think Goga's still working through that I like his physicality a lot like he's not like somebody who I think is like necessarily like imposing on the glass or um but he's willing to 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 step in and try and take a charge or to to block somebody um I like that I think the biggest thing for him though is he's improved a little bit um at least on closeouts, his mobility on the perimeter still isn't awesome. Like he's got to work on his footwork for sure. But he went from like every time he he, he went to close out on the corner, I thought it was going to be a foul. And now he's gotten a little bit better at chopping his feet and not just running into somebody. Um, and I, I think that's been a good improvement for him. Um, I mean, overall in the scheme, I think he fits pretty well as a rim protector. And it brings up a lot of questions about um, – having the three bigs on the roster and what that means. Um, but I mean, I think he's a legitimate rotation player now uh, pretty clearly. Yeah. What I would say is um, pretty definitively miles is a better defender oh, easily. <laughs> and, and most categories. Uh, the one thing that I will say with miles on the blocks is, is he's just incredible with his recovery speed. Yes. His ability to cover space and to get back is not, the way that Goga blocks shots like Goga is blocking shots with a standing reach. Generally speaking, miles is able to, and and some of that is, I will say some of it is him baiting people into drives, which can get a little bit in trouble. He likes to play possum a little bit and give people space to drive and then recover and, and get those blocks, which uh, a, a few times against, I thought Charlotte, you could see where Charlotte was like, Hey, we know you're going to do that. So we're just going to hold onto the ball for as long as possible and then make a little pass going back to the lane for, for the roller to stop short of the rim and make a shot. But Goga isn't giving you that element that, that miles is. And also miles is positioning, um, which I really felt like, I know he's getting a lot of attention for it now, but I wrote like a year ago, like just his adaptability in the pick and roll. I felt have really started to show up with his ability to play at various levels. I'm not sure I'm there with Goga. And the one thing that's interesting is people have been talking a lot about his defense, but the numbers with him on the floor recently haven't been super good. Mm -hmm. And in the Minnesota game, when they gave up 88 points in the second half, I thought there was a pretty telling moment where he's in a drop. Carl Anthony Towns pops and if we're being honest, like pretty much Jokic, Kat, and and uh, Vucevic are pretty much the only three bigs that you need to really scheme around with the pick and pop. And and mostly, like I know the one article that's out there, like teams don't even necessarily respect their shots. It just so happens that they're such good shooters, they're knocking down open shots. But so Goga's in a drop, 
And if you're in a drop, your first job is to contain the penetration. That's why you're in a drop. So I don't remember if Ricky Rubio or who is the ball handler, but he, he starts to get nervous as, as the player is, is dribbling off the pick and takes a step forward, which is a big no-no when you're in drop coverage, takes a step forward like, oh no, Carl Anthony Towns is popping and then just seeds a wide open driving lane. And the minute it happens, Nate Bjorkren spins around and motions to Jakar, get out there. And Goga did not play for the rest of the fourth quarter, except for like 15 seconds uh, when they needed a rebound, when, when the game was close there at the end. So it was interesting to me that they didn't really have trust with Goga in those defensive situations after that. And that can be somewhat, you know, what happens with young players in general. They don't have as much room to make mistakes. But I would say that he makes a lot of standout plays, but also still some egregious errors with his overall positioning. Like, it's getting better. There's even been a few times on the perimeter where I felt like, you know, in Orlando, one that I would point out is is he had a switch with Terrence Ross on the perimeter. And I don't know why Terrence Ross decided that he needed to – to dance around with the ball and shoot a shot when Mo Bamba had Aaron Holiday on a switch, but Goga kept him in front. And I think that that speaks to a little bit of improvement given that like Tyler Hero stood him up and completely shook him out of his shoes in the one Miami game. I mean, all three bigs to an extent, like when, when the Hornets went to small ball, I felt like that was just like a wrecking crew of leaving the, whether it was Miles Sabonis or Goga, like guys just getting wrecked on the perimeter by drives yeah. situations but my overall opinion is i'm very glad that goga is getting minutes i think it's good for his overall development i think there's fewer times where he looks lost um he made some good reads in the spain pick and rolls where he actually was able to run some get actions which i think speaks well of his his passing ability but he is not sabonis as a passer playmaker and he is not miles as a defender at all <laughs> yeah I, I think that Miles still has a pretty big leg up in that particular category, but, and I think that maybe a little tiny piece of this defensively, I guess I would ask your opinion is like the Pacers mostly because of Miles have like the, one of the lowest opponent field goal percentages at the rim in the NBA, but they give up like the second most points in the paint. Like they're giving up a ton of points in the paint because they have basically no rim deterrence. So is the funneling, the best overall defensive strategy like well, to say like can goga step into this funneling role i'm not sure where i'm at on seeding this many points in the paint because you're giving up like because you're constantly funneling people middle and and dealing with the excesses of some of the pressure out on the perimeter yeah and i think that's a really good point to bring up and that that's i just remember that was the second thing i wanted to bring up earlier like um it's not like <laughs> It's frustrating because now that I, I understand the defense a lot more and, and, and what I'm looking for, like, it's just not on. I mean, Miles makes mistakes. Domas makes mistakes. Goga makes mistakes for sure, too. I think just to answer your question right off the bat, like funneling to Goga just seems like I don't want to say it's a mistake, but like it just in terms of if he's playing like a bigger role or something, that's asking him to get into foul trouble a lot. Um I don't think he's necessarily ready to be in that kind of role. I like him like maybe being able to play a little bit more conservatively. Um, but just in, in looking at the defense in general, like, and this is just my opinion. You might, I'm interested to hear what you think, but I feel like a lot of the issues with where things are going, coming up the rim, like if miles is able to, to hang back a little bit 
and be a rim deterrence from, you know, coming over from the weak side or, or not having to be uh, playing center field and, and, and covering back. Um, that's where I feel like he's at his best. And I think he's really good at playing center field, obviously, like we just talked about. But, like, the problem is just guys not rotating weak side consistently. Like, there was a – I didn't want to be rude and clip it and put it on Twitter. I don't like posting negative stuff on, on Twitter, frankly. Like, I think it's important to analyze things and bring it up. I don't just, like, be like, well, look at this play that so-and-so messed up. Like, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It just feels weird to me. But, I mean, Karras has been really just not good at, at tagging. Um, and I think that's a lot of the problem with, with Domas, um, like the, the scheme oftentimes when uh, a pick and roll happens, it's not on Domas to, to, to both stop the roll man and to, to contain the pick and roll. Like there, the guy has to cross, I'm not cross over the guy, whoever's on the weak side has to come over and tag. And that just routinely does not happen. And I think that's where we see a lot of stuff that's easy at the rim and same thing too, like guys get back cut routinely on this team um so i don't know i think that's been my issue with with the rim like having drives come at the like right at the rim hasn't been great but i think a lot of the criticism criticism that gets levied at, at domas um or even goga or miles like i don't think it's always entirely warranted just because the help defense has been so bad on this team like the communication overall um i, I mean it's hard to tell because we're not in the in the arena like you can see miles communicating from the back line you could absolutely see Miles yeah. calling yeah. out. And well, I mean, Miles traffic. is – I think that's been really impressive with him this year. He's extremely active doing that, I think even more so than last year. But the problem is just, like, for whatever reason, things just don't happen in help. And it's been uh, – I think that's been more frustrating and, and part of the reason for why uh, there has been so much given up at the rim. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong in that, but that stands out to well, me. Well, it's interesting because they want to be super aggressive in the gaps. They want to bring – help at the nail early even before the drive occurs and that can lead to some back cutting when i wrote that earlier in the year i'm like teams are going to see this and they're going to start cutting behind that nail help or setting flare screens behind that nail help and and that happened i mean even in the game against the wizards when russ wasn't on ball he was doing the go and catch from the slot because where they were at the nail some of that's the problem but what you're bringing up with with like the lobs and some of the, the role man stuff, I think is a salient point because I remember um, miles drew some unfair criticism. I felt after the one home game against the Knicks that they lost and Mitchell Robinson had several Mitchell Robinson had several lobs and I'm like, okay, but Aaron is guarding Alfred Payton. Why, Why can't you have him tag or bump the roller to slow him down so that miles can, can guard both people. And in general, their weak side help isn't there. And I don't know. It's weird because they want to sink off of shooters in certain situations, but then when it's time to tag, a lot of times they want to stay home on the shooters and just hope that they can defend it two on two. And there are a lot of cases, like you said, like Miles's recovery speed and, and and spots allows him to do that. But I don't think it's fair to expect him to do it all the time. I mean, even in Cleveland, Jared Allen was getting, you know, several dunks while Colin Sexton was destroying and floater range until they finally went box and one in the second half to try to mitigate some of that. But, and another point is if you're playing Sabonis at the level or you're playing Miles at the level, you're not stopping the role man with either one of them. Like exactly. that's the point of having background rotations like that. I don't know. Sometimes we like to share tweets about, well, this is why Sabonis can't play center field or, or whatever. And it's like, okay, but 
Karis is just standing there watching the play develop. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, like the entire piece needs to come into play because I mean, and and it's not because Sabonis is a great defender. Like I'm not making that argument. There were plays in Orlando, one where he was way too high and it didn't help that, that Orlando got the law, but also there was no tag or like at the end of the game. I mean, that's another point I will bring up in that Orlando game. And now we're getting off into tangent territory again, but it it plays into this, this defensive discussion that, if I don't, I don't really know why all of a sudden it was like, we must blitz Terrence Ross at every turn. Like we have to get the, we have to be super aggressive with six minutes left to play and treat this like it's the final possession of the game while also stalling out and isoing possessions at the other end. Like that was a little bit weird for me. And then they give up the wide open dunk to Terrence Ross where they had been alternating between um, switching and blitzing and then just full out dropping and Malcolm's on Terrence. And I don't remember if it's Wendell Carter Jr. or who it is up at the wing. And he's setting a side pick and roll. I think the Sabonis thinks they're going to blitz. So he's getting ready to step up on that side. And then Malcolm kind of has this problem where he does not force people over on the screens at times. This happened against Russell too. And you once the big is up there, if you're going to blitz, you have to force that guy over. So mm-hmm. Terrence rejects the screen, gets wide down the lane, and then there's not a single person who even steps into the paint and tries to stop him while they all just watch the dunk occur. And then you can kind of see that Malcolm and Sabonis, I don't know if Malcolm thought that they were going to switch and Sabonis thought they were going to blitz, but that speaks to some of the miscommunications they have in general when they're changing so rapidly what type of coverage that they're in. I mean, you can even see that at the end of the game in Memphis because when John Morant was out there, they went box and one with TJ McConnell. But if John Morant didn't have the ball, then sometimes they were calling out two, three, and sometimes they were like, no, now we're just going to be in man. And when they switch so rapidly, you can see some of those miscommunications. But um, a lot of that didn't really have to do with Goga. But are you through both of your questions? Yes. Okay. So now that we've talked for like an hour about all of these things and the long rambly stuff, I think that we're prepared for the main topic of this podcast. Uh, yes, we have to talk about food takes, but also uh, just really quick, um, prayers up to Jamal Murray. Uh, just, I, I don't know if you saw, but I Shams did, just tweeted out. Yeah, terrible. Um, Jamal Murray's going to be out for the season with an ACL injury, which just absolutely sucks because um, I enjoy the heck out of watching the Nuggets. And he's been having a great year after struggling with some consistency and um just uh, really unfortunate. So hopefully he can come back okay and uh, and be all right. Um, but yeah, that definitely stinks. Um, moving on to uh, what we want to talk about, though, uh, we're going to talk about our five least favorite foods because last month we talked about our five favorite foods, and uh, that drew a lot of uh, a lot of ire from people, uh, especially my Granny Smith apples at number two seemed to to really rub people the wrong way. That's too bad. I'll eat all of them. Um, but now we're going to talk about our five least favorite foods. And I have a feeling that this uh, this might draw even more uh, feedback from from our listeners than, than the first first go around. But I, I'm interested to see where we go with this. I'm interested to get your insights on some of my picks. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. One of them in particular, I think that you'll have a lot to offer on. Um, so I'll start out. I have power ranked my my foods with five being the lowest and one will end up being the food that I hate the most mm. or dislike the most. But I'm assuming that you also power ranked yours or whatever you should I call did. a ranking when it's something bad. Um, so number five on my list is going to riff off of my opinions of my top five favorite foods. And it turns out that my love of seafood does have its limits, Mark. 
as, as much as I love all things seafood, and I also really like shrimp, as it showed with my shrimp bruschetta take, I do not want my food to have a face. I don't yes. want to eat fish with the head on. I do not want my shrimp with heads on them. Like, I, I don't want that. I understand that it offers flavor. I get that people are going to come with that. But most of all, I do not want an undeveined shrimp on my plate. Oh, I God, don't understand terrible. eating a shrimp digestive track, Mark. I it's, don't. There, because there's nothing to understand. It's terrible. Like, <laughs> But yet people do this. People do this. That's weird. And, and no, that is number five. Like just a big big no not shrimp with heads and not undeveined shrimp get that out of here yeah no that's disgusting i don't know have you ever seen mr bean's holiday <laughs> no okay well i was going somewhere with this but he uh there's a scene where he eats a langoustine which is like basically just the giant a baby with the head on. yeah and um it's like i think that's what initially scarred me with uh with headed seafood um, because it's just like it looks like yeah like a, a mini shrimp lobster hybrid thing and it's a little bit terrifying and he eats the head and it just uh yeah that that scared me when i was a kid so i've never been a big fan of of things that have heads on them still um regardless of what it is whether or not it's seafood or not seafood i i just prefer to to you know be a little bit vain and not know that i'm eating an animal um exactly i don't mystery. want it to look at me while i'm doing it so it's a a little bit of a guilt-ridden thing but i agree like also too i don't know how i feel about this i don't like cold shrimp i just do not like cold shrimp i know that's a big thing for like new year's eve and stuff like dunking it in cocktail sauce i also don't like cocktail sauce things kind of gross no no this is completely wrong shrimp oh. cocktail has a definite place well i do not and, like and, shrimp if you're going to be moving to indiana i pretty much and and we're going to, I'm sure there's going to be pushback that I'm bringing up the only restaurant that people think exists in, in Indiana. But if you're going to be moving to Indiana and you can't eat St. Elmo's shrimp cocktail, like what are we even doing? There's a place for a cold shrimp, Mark. There I don't think there is. Place. I just don't like the, the texture is so bad. It's, uh, it's like slimy and I just, I don't like it. It, the, it, I like seafood, but I don't like things to taste like the sea if that makes any sense. No, I'm yeah, sure I, mean, that's I don't very, like things yeah. to be fishy either. But. Yeah. I just, I, I don't, I don't vibe with that very well. It's a, I love shrimp when it's cooked and like kind of crispy, fantastic. I just cannot get over, um, cannot get over shrimp. That is, uh, that is, it's not raw obviously, but it, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't mesh with that. Well, yeah, I, I like to keep the mystery alive with my meat as well. I'm a carnivore, but I don't like to think about the meat that I'm eating while I'm eating it. So, but exactly. what is your number five? My number five is, uh, so I have it power rank, but I keep thinking about changing stuff, but I'll just <laughs> go number five because this one is, uh, not popular, but I'm going to get it out of the way. Pasta. I just don't like pasta. What? I think, what are we doing here? <laughs> I'm blown away. I'm aghast. <laughs> I have to. I don't. Okay. Well, part of it's probably because I've eaten so much pasta in my lifetime because pasta is cheap and it doesn't take that long to cook. I just, I don't think it's that good. Like spaghetti noodles are kind of not great. I don't like spaghetti. Um, I know we probably have a lot of Italian American listeners who are going to just absolutely shut down on this, which is why we're doing this at the end and not during the hour and a half of basketball analysis. Um, I don't like it. Like I, it's, it's kind of rubbery. I don't like the texture. I'd rather have bread or rice. I power ranked carbs not that long ago. And I got a lot of takes on this because I said, 
uh, rice is the best. Then you have bread right after, and then you have like 50 layers of nothingness. And then you have pasta, um, like angel hair pasta. I don't like, um, the bow tie pasta. I really don't like, I had bad childhood stuff with that. Oh my word. Um, ravioli can be okay sometimes, but it depends what it's stuffed with. Um, but I'm also allergic to dairy, so I just probably shouldn't eat ravioli. Um, lasagna i don't like lasagna lasagna is just a mess like every time that i see lasagna i'm like what are you you're you're just like a a, it's not a disgrace but it's just kind of weird i'm like why do why do we have like a tort of meat and cheese with sauce it just it doesn't make sense it's kind of messy i don't like being messy i'm a very organized and clean person um i also just don't like getting my hands dirty which plays into some of my later food takes um but yeah pasta pasta is just not it for me i'm just aghast at this number one like we need to really break this down number one if the pasta is rubbery that's because it wasn't cooked properly i think you didn't let it boil in the pot long enough if it's coming out and it's rubbery and in your defense bow ties can be tricky because i would actually power rank my top two pastas as angel hair and bow ties i think that they are both delicious but the bow tie, if you don't leave it in the pot to boil long enough, the very middle can get a little chewy and crunchy, but you just have to, you have to go longer than what the box of the pasta says. So I think what you need to do is leave it in the water and taste it instead of just like going with the minute mark that they say to cook it. Angel hair pasta, and to go back to my shrimp take, angel hair pasta with butter sauce or white wine sauce and shrimp, that is fantastic. Yeah, I don't Was- really like white sauce. Or butter sauce oh no i yeah <laughs> this is just going completely off the rails caitlin's never going to talk to me again man uh, uh, the you take i can get up on board with a bit because if it's not i don't know it can get messy and then like the layers can like the top can slide off and, and i don't really want that the only pasta that i will support you on that is just purely bad is manicotti i don't need manicotti i don't want big lumps of like basically cottage cheese inside of a of a log of pasta. I don't want that, but just having pasta in general as bad and, and saying it's rubbery in general, this is right up there with the apple take. I don't, I don't, oh, I don't know just, how to process man. it. I just think like, I, and it's not even just for me cooking it. Like I, I don't like pasta at restaurants. I'd rather like, if I'm going to get chicken Parmesan, I'd rather just have like chicken Parmesan and like maybe some bread on the side than, uh, than a giant heaping pile of spaghetti underneath that I just don't want to touch and just gets in the way of me eating my chicken parmesan. Like, come on, dude. I, I just don't like it. It's uh... no, that, that part I can get behind. There have been times where I've gone to Italian restaurants and ordered our favorite salmon piccata. Oh, God, and there was, so there, good. there was not pasta involved there, but um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go the rest of the time without any pasta. I could, but I my I next take, I, I'm very interested to know your thoughts on my number four because I think that you're going to be able to clear some stuff up for me. In general, when I was ranking my foods, I didn't want to pick something where like, for example, I had a really bad piece of pizza once. Like it, it yeah. was terrible from a specific restaurant, but in general, pizza is really good. So Pizza's that's not a worst buy yeah. food, but um, number four is Granny Smith apples. <laughs> no, oh I'm joking. my God. I'm okay. joking. I'm joking. Well, that's is, the podcast is, folks. Yeah. It is a bottom five apple, but not a bottom five food. So 
no number four for me is eggnog which i realize this is a beverage so bad okay i realize it's not a food it's a beverage it counts but i'm counting it and here's my experience with eggnog i've only had it once in my life and that was enough because i was at a party and it had been prepared and unfortunately the party was downstairs in a basement and (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's the only place where you find eggnog honestly so yes so the person comes up to me and is like here we made eggnog and they just hand it directly to me like there's no turning down this this cup of eggnog i have to take it and i did not want it but there wasn't really a choice offered to me so i take it and it's been prepared hot but it had sat out a while so it was was, eggnog hot i don't know what's happening mark i'm trying to explain the experience so it was a hot eggnog that had become warm and i'm handed it and i don't know what's going on because to look at it it has like a stretchy skin like surface like there's a definite surface oh my tension God. there and I take a drink of it and it was like I was drinking chowder oh. or like a very warm pudding and I there's no place to dispose of this the basement does not have a bathroom or like a bar sink like I just have to keep drinking it until it's gone and in that moment of my life I vowed that never again would I drink eggnog so I know that you have experience as a bartender is this what eggnog is I was fortunate enough to never work in a place that had me serve eggnog. Um, I don't think eggnog is ever supposed to be hot. Um, I just like am vehemently against things other than hot chocolate that have dairy in them being heated up. Like what? Like, I mean, I guess you can have like, okay, maybe that was too egregious of a take, but eggnog hot. Like that's like, to me, that's like people who heat up milk. Like I, I had like, first of all, people who drink milk kind of weird me out um yes yeah but but also like i i knew i knew people growing up who would like heat up milk and drink it and i just like it it like rubbed me the wrong way because i had a really bad experience of uh i actually have a lot of bad food experiences that that detailed why i don't like certain foods uh this one time when i was a kid i actually drank milk when i was a kid and there i'd never experienced buttermilk before in my life right and i i think i just mowed the lawn i was probably like 10 or 11 and I came inside and I didn't really feel like getting water. And I was like, oh, I'll have a glass of milk. So I, I, I like pull out this, uh, this like um, more, it was a pint instead of a, instead of a gallon. I was like, oh, that's weird. We never have pints of milk, but I was like, fine, I'll drink it. So I pour it out. I was like, oh, this milk's kind of like, seems thick. And I just take a sip and it was straight buttermilk. And that oh, was no. like the, ever since then, I always smell my milk to make sure A, that it's not bad and B that it's not buttermilk because I use like the smallest amount of milk possible for my cereal so that I don't like die. Um, cereal of, is terrible. So I don't love cereal, but like sometimes if I'm just like in a rush and I have to do a lot of stuff that day, I don't really feel like making toast, even though toast takes like just as long, but long story short, eggnog is gross. I don't like eggy things. Um, I don't like how it feels like it, like you mentioned, like it's so thick eggnog is just thick and i don't like drinking things that are thick like it's if it's if it's soup consistency i should eat it with a spoon i've never liked that i don't know how you feel about like do you remember the campbell's to go things that were like in like the handheld um and you were gonna drink it exactly like no no, you can't do that that's just gross especially if there's stuff in it like i block that it's terrible it's absolutely terrible like am I going to drink chicken noodle soup or like potato leek soup or like clam chowder? No. Cause that's terrible. Would you just swallow 
chunks of clam on a regular basis? I don't think so. Uh, at least I'd hope not. Like, that's just kind of weird to me. That's how I feel about eggnog. Like There I is another layer to to the conversation. This, this I was underage at the time, and this was not, oh, wow. this was not alcoholic eggnog. So that oh, okay. might have played a part. And I've had people tell me that, like, well, you live with eggnog because, you know, there's alcohol in it. Uh, and my response to that would be, doesn't there has to be a better mode for our our alcohol consumption, a better vehicle for this than egg jello? Like, can't we find another way to drink alcohol besides eggnog at Christmas time? I think we can. Yeah. I think we can do it. No, we definitely can. Uh, I would personally recommend. I've made like alcoholic hot chocolate at a bar before. And it's uh it's good stuff. You just need like Bailey's. Maybe like if you like if you're a mint person, I am not a mint person. Peppermint schnapps does exist. Um, but yeah, eggnog's a bad thing. I think I'm pretty clear in saying that. And I agree, like I first of all, there's so many layers to that, like you're mentioning. Like the American obsession with drinking is always uh it's interesting to me. Um, like and especially too, I don't want to subject myself to eggnog if that's what I'm doing to drink. I'd rather just have like give me a nice thing of whiskey, like. I'd rather drink something that I like drinking instead of forcing myself to drink eggnog at a family party, you know, but yeah, just as a, just, just me. as a means for alcohol. I don't know, but what is that's your weird. number four? What is well, and going along with like the, the egginess and consistency, a lot of stuff for me is tech is texture. Number yeah. four for me is more of a, it's not necessarily a food, but it's in a lot of food and I don't like it when it's in food or on food or touches food or is just around it. And I know that things are based in, I had a conversation with the one and only Dave Searle about this. I just don't like that it is so existent in our culture. That is mayo. I hate mayo. I hate mayonnaise. I hate Miracle Whip. I hate anything that even slightly resembles mayo in texture or taste or, or flavor. Um, and I just can't get behind it. Like people who make their grilled cheese, uh, which I don't make anymore, of course, but when I did, I never made mayo. I mean, I never, I mean, I never made grilled cheese with mayo and I don't care that it can be better for making your sandwich toasted. I would rather suffer through the toasting of butter than to have mayo desiccate my sandwich, to be completely honest. I just, it's, the taste is kind of off. I don't like that. It's, it's almost like the same consistency as like marshmallow fluff. I just, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big, big, big detractor of mayo. How dare you conflate marshmallow fluff with mayo? <laughs> Not even in the same conversation, but mayo on its own. No, I don't want that. Like I put up with it on like a, a BLT. I'll, I'll live with it, but I don't want it just on a hamburger or something. Like I, I don't need that. Um, but I do need mayo in some of the things that I eat and, and prepare. Like I need deviled eggs. Deviled eggs wouldn't be the Ooh, same without like mayo. Um, I need chicken salad, ham salad. I like those sandwiches. Not the same without mayo. I've even made um, some lobster rolls that have involved mayo because that's another mode for me to get seafood. Um, so I, I need mayo as an ingredient, but when it's a standalone, it can be a little bit much. So I would say that mayo is like the TJ McConnell of the food world. If TJ McConnell's off ball and like a team's blitzing, it's like, mm, that's, that's the mayo on the hamburger. But TJ McConnell does so many valuable things and, and can be a really needed ingredient in some recipes that keeps the offense moving, makes, makes the, the recipe what I need it to be. That I, I can't have mayo on a bottom five food list. I, I don't see that. You know what's better than mayo that I think should be utilized more? Uh, that's stone ground mustard. 
stone ground mustard is a fantastic mustard is thing. mustard is an elite condiment it that, is that's definitely sure I, yeah. I i'm on board with not that. just like the yellow crappy heinz mustard like that's nice on like a hot dog if you're at a baseball game even though i don't like baseball um but i mean yeah stone ground mustard stadium mustard elite uh, i wish that we could use it more than mayo um what is your number three my number three i mean plays directly into the eggnog to an extent it is jello Oh, yes, I agree. I don't want any type of jello. And here's the main reason why. I don't know what to do with it. Like, it's kind of like our discussion on Skittles. What is jello? Like, it gets in my mouth, and I don't know if I'm supposed to chew it, directly exactly. swallow it. And then when it gets in my throat, it's like I'm going to choke, which is it's ridiculous. Very uncomfortable. Because I'm it. not going to literally choke on something that melts down to nothing. But I haven't really chewed it, and then I'm swallowing it, and I just, I just feel like I'm going to choke on the jello. So, Egg jello is worse than regular jello. So I probably should have flip-flopped these two picks, but given that jello, the gelatin-like quality of eggnog is why I didn't like it, I've ranked jello higher. And I don't want any jello ever. Like even at times when I've had tonsillitis and stuff, like just give me a cup of applesauce or a regular pudding. Do not bring me jello. Yeah, I detest jello, frankly. Um, like you mentioned, like I how what do you do with it first of all what utensil do you eat it with i don't want to use my hands i don't want to touch <laughs> your jello. hands no I, I, don't. It's not, I mean people serve jello jigglers mark i've been i know i don't like at the them. same party at the same oh, household God. where i was once served eggnog somebody pushed a jello jiggler on me and i did not like that either i just don't like watching it like if like if you can shake it and it it like does that little reverberation thing. I hate that. I absolutely hate that. Like I, I think probably part of the issue is that I saw flubber when I was a kid and I was like, wow, I am never eating jello again. Cause what if it's actually alive and it's been created by, you know, a scientist, um, which actually, I mean, if you really think about it, jello has been created by a scientist food for thought. Um, no, yeah, it's just gross. I don't like the the flavor of it. Most of it has food dye in it, and food dye is absolutely terrible for you. Um, and I just don't like the idea of like eating red forty, frankly. Um, but also, like you mentioned, the biggest thing is just mouthfeel. Like, what am I like every time when I was a kid that I took a bite of Jello because that's what my mom made me like eat for a snack or something. I just be like, what what is going on in my mouth right now? Like, it's kind of disintegrating. But it's also like it's there and it's uniform, but it's just it's a bad time. I don't have anything good to say about Jello that, that could be. Yeah, I don't even have constructive criticism criticism for how Jello could be better. I just think that we just shouldn't eat it. Um, and also like watching Jello get made is kind of weird. I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, I, I, you don't even go down that rabbit hole, Mark. I don't want to think about how the jello is made. <laughs> it, what would you rather do? Would you rather watch Roy Hibbert back somebody down in the post and double dribble six times, or uh, or watch Jello get made? Um, I Roy Hibbert, but it might be a closer call between Roy Hibbert just like falling down for no <laughs> reason. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Roy Roy fell a lot, man. Roy fell a lot, but uh. Yeah, we're, I think at some point Chris Herring needs to like write down a breakdown of just how many times Roy ever fell, just like tripping over the block when nobody was there. But yeah, um, oh, that's your number fantastic. three. I'm having my, trouble recovering. 
<laughs> well, my number three is kind of a similar vein. It's like it's kind of like a hardened version of Jello, and that's Twizzlers. Oh, uh, Twizzlers are awful. Twizzlers, Twizzlers Red Vines, whatever bad. they are, they're terrible. Those are right up there with Skittles. Yeah, they're just bad. I don't like Twizzlers at all. I know a lot of people who like them. I don't understand why. Um, like they're just licorice on its own is just a bad thing. I don't like licorice. Um, it just doesn't taste good. There are so many better candies that you could ingest if you're going to go that route. I personally don't like candy. I'm not like a huge, um, like I like chocolate, but I don't just like love sweets in general. Um, yeah, Twizzlers are kind of gross. And I, they just, they just come in a big old bag of these rope things. And I just, I, I think part, my biggest problem with them is people are more like, if Twizzlers did not come in that like rope fashion like if they were if they weren't the only candy like that would you actually eat it would you actually consider it something that's that's valuable or important to your life and i i think the answer is no and i want to say too that i think i mean i think you and i are on the same page i just don't really want red foods yeah like it's um, unnatural yeah and and yeah the natural foods i want red strawberries give me those like i will gladly eat those but the food dyed red foods generally are bad like even in the fruit snack packs i don't want the cherries get those out of there um but if we must eat i don't trust i would not trust anybody if they said their favorite candy was a twizzler like i would have serious questions there but if we need a fruity candy just eat a sour patch kid like why are you wasting your time buying a twizzler yeah but sour yeah. patch kids are good sour I, patch kids are delicious them. and i actually do like the red versions of those so i retract that i don't like any red artificial foods i do like a red sour patch kid. can we get a quick starburst power rankings for oh uh, pink for pink and then a, a long drop off after everything else oh that's pink and yellow are definitely the top two well that's wrong um i think you go red and then you go yellow and then you go orange and then i just don't eat the pink ones they make entire bags of the pink because society has realized that the pink is the elite star i don't like pink lemonade um i just don't like the pink the the pink starburst are kind of eh i i'm like i I very much so am a red starburst person i think that's the only red red candy oh okay i also like red jolly ranchers i like cherry flavored things no strawberry flavored things things, though like strawberries on their own really great strawberry flavored things kind of terrible I'm going to need you to retract that after you eat a strawberry outshine popsicle. I'm, I'm really going to need that. By the time we have the May podcast, I'm going to need you to eat one of those and, and say, I know that strawberry things are good. So good that I can't stop eating strawberry outshine popsicles. I am going to reach out to outshine uh, before the next pod and see if we can get some kind of sponsorship going. Cause we talk about outshine enough on the podcast that I think we should be sponsored by them, but We'll find out. I've never had an outshine pop school, so we'll get there. I know it's on my to-do list, but just uh, we'll see. My number two is going to – it's going to have some blowback. I, okay. I People aren't going to like this, but I have to speak my truth. Um, going back to what you said earlier about the buttermilk, I think there's something to be said when you're expecting one flavor and something turns out to be entirely different. So I was once at a pizza buffet. And there was pizza with chicken on top. And I thought, oh, you know, that might be good. I'll get a piece of that. And I thought it was going to be barbecue chicken. So I go back to the table. I sit down. I take a bite. And it literally tastes like um, I've thrown up in my mouth just like a little bit while also eating a Red Hot. And it was buffalo sauce. And buffalo sauce is terrible. I don't know why any of you like buffalo sauce. That tastes like hot vomit. That, that's just what it is. Wow. So what is your buffalo sauce opinion? 
I like buffalo sauce, to be honest. Uh, but it depends. Like, it can't just be, like – so, like, was it just, like, straight buffalo sauce or, like, how – I don't know, Mark. I don't know. After the one bite in my mouth when I was expecting there to be barbecue sauce and it was that experience, I did not finish the piece of pizza. And I've given buffalo sauce a few other chances. I've been at at events where people had like buffalo dip. Um, that you I like eat. buffalo dip better than and, sauce. And I've eaten it on a few other things and I just do not like it at all. I think it's terrible. I don't understand like the obsession with Buffalo wings, which I know is going to be right up there with the granny Smith apple and, and, and what people are going to say about me, but I have to be true to myself. Well, here's the thing. Do you like spicy food? Not really. Okay. Well, this makes more sense to me. Like, I don't think this is that egregious of a take. Yeah. I don't really want, I don't understand like wanting to be sitting at a table at a restaurant and have your face sweating. (laughs) Like, why do people like this? Yeah. So I'm all for spice, but like meaningful spice. It's like, like looking at, uh, like I think of Antoine Walker when I think of spice, like Antoine Walker, one of my favorite dudes to watch film on because he had a really fun game, but he was also like, um, I think the best way to put it is he was always just like, a half a move or like half a step or like just half an inch from being like one of the greatest players of all time. Cause the move was fantastic, but the shot would just miss. And that's how I feel about spice. A lot of times, like the spice is just unnecessary sometimes. Like sometimes it enhances the flavor as you're exactly. saying, like if it I enhances put the kind, flavor. Great. But yeah, if it doesn't I put like, cayenne in certain things that I prepare, just not a, it's not like an egregious amount. Like it, it, it helps it a bit, but my face isn't sweating from it. And when I eat Buffalo sauce, that's generally my reaction. And I just, I don't like that. I agree with that take. I, I think I enjoy Buffalo sauce for the most part, but I also really enjoy spicy food. So it makes sense. Um, yeah. I, I think you are definitely going to get some fire for that. Um, I'm interested to see how that one plays out. Uh, my number two, um, gosh, I I'm torn between my one and two, uh, which one am I going to actually, you know, you just talked about Buffalo sauce getting you in trouble. I think this one's going to get me in trouble. Um, number two for me is I just don't really like barbecue food. Um, Uh-oh. so ribs, I, I were, Oh no, I don't like ribs. I, I don't, as is well noted, I do not like bone in wings. Um, I just don't really enjoy, like, I think we overrate grilling to an extent um like there's just like the the suburban uh suburban midwestern dad who goes out and grills i think most dads are not very good at grilling they just cook the shit out of things and it has grill marks on it and they're like oh look at what what we just made it's not actually that good sorry guys um we just lather everything up in barbecue sauce and it's so messy and i don't like touching it like i hate picking up ribs the meat gets stuck in your teeth which I really don't like too. I feel like I have to shower after I'm done eating it because of the sauce all over me. Um, I really just think barbecue food is overrated. I'd prefer that we just like find a more meaningful way of cooking things and throwing it on a grill and thinking that it actually does something and adds value because I don't think it does. Um, And I'm sure that people are going to have a lot to say about this. Also, cooking burgers on the grill should just be like a crime. Burgers should be cooked in a cast iron pan where all the juices don't go falling out into the bottom of your, 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 uh, I can't speak of your grill. I don't want a steak with, with grill marks on it because again, you're losing so much from it by cooking it over an open stove. I mean, not, not stove, open, open slats. Like all the juice is falling out. You're, you're losing something on it. Grill marks are overrated. Grilling is overrated on itself. 
Um, I just think barbecue food is kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, and also most barbecue sauces don't taste that great. Like they're just like, they either taste like straight mesquite or straight sugar and it's not good. Um, I'm really going to get in trouble for this one on, on Twitter, aren't I, Caitlin? I don't, I don't even know. Again, I'm just, I am without words. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I need, I need there to be ribs. I want brisket. I like, okay. I like pork. brisket. I need all of that, which I think falls under the barbecue quality um, category. The rib thing is interesting because I get where you're coming from a bit. What we said earlier with the mystery, there's not as much mystery involved when you're eating meat off of directly off a bone. But I think again, it goes back to your pasta take. Like, are you just not having good quality ribs? Is this where it's coming into play? Like, are the ribs falling right off the bone? Are you having the correct type of barbecue sauce? I just feel like maybe you haven't been exposed to the best quality here. And just overall, just throwing out the value of grilling. Like, I this feels to me like somebody who would tell me, like, well, why do I need Sabonis or another playmaking big when I could just have you know, a couple of guards that can do the same thing. Like, because there is enhancement from having the guards that can do it along with, you know, like what has been a problem with Portland in the past. Yes, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum are tremendous, but it would be nice if they would have had, you know, a Draymond Green type guy who could have made plays out of the four on three. That is the grilling. The grilling does have something to add, even with seafood. Like if you cook lobster or scallops or shrimp on a wood-fired grill, that adds definite flavor. Well, that's different. I think, I mean, like if that you would not get if you cooked them just in a skillet well here okay if you're cooking on a propane grill like the regular regular grill like propane charcoal actually i think charcoal is more fine but like if you're just cooking on the regular propane grill that that every american dad seems to have in the suburbs or out in the country i just i i just think it's it's overrated i really do i, I don't think it's as good as people think um but and and just like salmon salmon is much i mean and i love salmon but it is much better on a grill than see grilled salmon is okay grilled salmon is different because if you put the skin side down you're not losing as much that way and i i agree with that like i'm fine with that yeah so we can't just throw grilling out we're not just throwing the baby out with the bath i will throw the barbecue out i i will throw the barbecue out barbecue chicken i'm not not sure you're ever going to be allowed into memphis or kansas city i've been okay so i have (laughs) again there's this place in memphis called rendezvous um, and it's like one of the higher rated, um, rib places in Memphis. I did not enjoy the ribs. Part of it's probably because I was in middle school and I'm a picky kid, but I, I didn't, I don't, I don't know. I like, well, I've that been... might've been because Memphis is dry rub. Was it dry rub? It was dry rub. That's, so that's probably, probably why you didn't like it. it, but I think that has a place too, but I, I don't know. I, I'm out on this take. I'm I'm fully out. I can't throw. I can't throw all of that away. I'll stick with it. I'm. Uh, my, my number one is going to change your life. Like oh, I'm, I'm. I'm excited. This is going to be life changing, <laughs> because what it is scarred me for life. This experience did, and I'm I'm not even joking. So as a little background, I do not like food as art. Um, yes. I have an appreciation for the people who can do it. Like you are a skilled individual if you can do some of this, and I get that kids might like it. But I don't want to eat that. I don't want like hands that have molded things, especially not in the current trying times that we live in. I don't want to think about all of that. So with that as a background, I will also say that I detest hot dogs. 
I, yes. I don't want any hot dog. I don't know what's in the hot dog. I don't like the way that the texture of the hot dog is. And it's odd because I'll eat a brat and I eat some sausage and I like it, but I, I hate hot dogs. And this is something that acquired for me over time. Cause as a kid, I ate hot dogs all the time, but as an adult, I do not want them. So putting these two things combined, the story that I'm about to tell you again, it scarred me. I was at target and as you know, Target has the little snack stand, or it did. Mm-hmm. The Target that's near me no longer has one. And, and maybe this is why. Like, we can't say. Um, so I'm standing there wanting to get a bag of popcorn and an icy combo to walk around the store. Oh, with. the icies After, are so good. Yeah, icies are delicious. Like, just, that should have probably been on my top five food list, but that's Same. an aside. Um I'm standing there waiting for my combo after a day at college at Target wanting to shop. And I look down at the me- the kids menu and that's when I see it. An Octo dog, Mark. An Octo what? dog. It's a hot dog where they've cut the bottom into tentacles and spread the legs out over a sea of macaroni and cheese. And it's sitting what there. The and hell? now this is, this is going to play into the my take about shrimp with heads and not wait did you eat it please don't no no okay i was about to say like i at this point in my life i detest hot dogs and this is what i'm seeing and this is what i'm about ready to tell you about food with a face or heads is it went beyond just the tentacles they carved out eyes out of the top of the hot dog it had a face on the menu and i literally my sister was with me at the day and i like grabbed her arm a bit and i was just horrified by what i was looking at and i will tell you that two weeks later that menu item was gone it was no longer (laughs) there and i think it's because they had terrified too many people i don't know what other explanation there can be but in preparation for this apparently there are still people like on pinterest and other places who are making octo dogs for their kids at the risk of of them having this thought in their heads for the rest of the time and i just want to tell you to please stop because i can't remove that once it's in my head it's there forever so octo dog without a doubt the number one worst food and i've never even eaten it i've eaten the hot dog i've eaten macaroni but i will never eat an octo dog and i think that says a lot about how bad it is because i'm not even going to eat it yeah that's um that's kind of traumatizing to think about um even just like sitting here listening I'm you not talk sure about we can it. carry on with the pod i mean to be i honest. got very uncomfortable just thinking about it especially too on mac and cheese i don't like mac and cheese so um wow Especially craft, like craft mac and cheese is disgusting. I mean, this particular mac and cheese looked like it was um, like scientifically engineered yellow. Oh god! And then there was a, this octo dog swimming in it, and I just I don't I don't know what to tell you. It was quite bad. Wow, that is um, that's abysmal. That's absolutely abysmal. Um, I don't even know if I have this. a rebuttal to that. Like, I don't even know what I can add to that. Um, so I'll just flow into my, my first overall, which I know, uh, uh, you're not going to agree with. And I know most people don't agree with me on this. Um, pickles. No, I hate pickles. We've circled back to pickles being bad. We have circled back to pickles. We've circled back to embalmed cucumbers. I mean, this is just what we're at. I don't think that they're good. I just, I can't get over it. Um, I've tried to have good pickles before, um, and I still hate them. I'm sorry. Uh, I've tried to have, I mean, I've, 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 like, I, I do legitimately try and eat them. I just, I just don't like them. I don't like the ones that come on your sandwich. I don't like the ones that come on the side of your meal. Um, I don't like, 
I think we're writing Homemade a Dr. Pickles? Seuss book and Green Eggs <laughs> responds with replaced with pickles. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, they're just like I don't I don't love vinegar. Like people who like salt and vinegar chips kind of bother me. Um, because I think that they're I just trying those. oh well I, I vinegar is good. Vinegar has a place. I don't I, unless it's in buffalo good. sauce. Do you put vinegar on french fries? Oh yeah, I do that. Oh too. my god, Caitlin. Oh uh, the only place I don't want vinegar is in the awful buffalo sauce that should be big. <laughs> yeah. I just well you can have all my vinegar and pickles because I cannot I just can't can't get there like pickled onions can be fine ish but pickled like I just don't like cucumbers in general either I think cucumbers are kind of unnecessary like cucumbers are a bit overrated on their own yeah they just like they don't offer a lot in the flavor department they really don't they're just kind of like they're they're the watermelon of vegetables for me like I think watermelon's kind of eh, it's so overrated um watermelon is cumbersome there's a lot exactly. of work that goes and it's really that. sticky too i don't like that it gets everywhere um as you can see a big thing with my foods texture and messiness um yeah no pickles pickles bad yeah I, I think that my only take here is i can't change your mind we all have our own unique palates and what we like and don't like i respect it i mean people need to respect that i don't like buffalo sauce so I see that, but I have a hard time seeing that of all the foods we've named today, that a pickle is somehow worse than things like Jello and eggnog. I almost had chunky fruit up there. Chunky fruit is a close one. Chunky fruit? What is chunky fruit? So like any kind of pie that has fruit in it, terrible. Um, I don't like, like, you know, those little like fruit packs um, that come in like the, the, like the sugar water. Oh, a fruit Terrible. cup. Yeah, yeah, a fruit cup. That's what I meant to say. I mean, those have a place when I'm packing a lunch. I mean, See, they're I certainly like not as good as fresh fruit, but yeah, they, have their, they serve a purpose. Yeah, that was like number six for me. And then I also had Skyline Chili just off because Skyline is disgusting. Um, and you're from Ohio. I am from Ohio. Oh, and I like oh. every time I tell people I'm from Ohio and they're like, oh, do you like Skyline Chili? I'm like, well, here's the thing. No, it's terrible. Um, why would I want chili on spaghetti? I hate spaghetti. I don't like, I mean, chili can be fine on its own, but Skyline's chili is not good. Um, it is absolutely detestable and they have hot dogs too. So it's just terrible. Like a chili dog makes me want to vomit. Like chili dogs are gross. Maybe that should be number one for me. It's a conglomeration. Involving a hot dog is gross. I mean, that's just what it is, but, um, I, I'm with you. I've never, my number one was Octodog. Oh yes, it was. You went for, you went first. I forgot. Um, Wow, we had a, Man, we had a you made good, me good utter list. the name Octodog again. Like I told you, <laughs> that was triggering for me. It's almost like, uh, gosh, what is a? Uh, it's like Candyman, except Octodog. Exactly. Octodog. <laughs> you say it too many times, then it's gonna come for you. So, watch out. Well, this podcast was entirely too long, but for, <laughs> for the last like two people that have heard us through to the end, I appreciate you. This you're was re- awesome. I had a great ones. time. You're real ones. The, the two people that listen to the entire thing. I think we probably had many people listen all the way through. Uh, they, they come here for the basketball analysis. They, uh, they stay for the food takes though. Um, I think we changed lives. Flames. I mean, I think we really changed lives. With we might've, I think we warned people enough about Octodogs to stay away. Um, so hopefully, don't search them. Never Google them on the internet. <laughs> it's like Evan Fournier. Just it is. Never, it is. never, never, never Google um, Octodog. <laughs> Well, Caitlin, this was a this was a blast. Do you have anything that you want to plug or uh, or mention before we get out of here? Actually, no. I've I've kind of my last week has been harrowing enough that I don't have something directly in the tank, and I've kind of been waiting to see. You know, I I just want Miles's ankle to heal up, get Me better, too. so that we can see you back out on the court with the rest of the people and and fully 
get a better sense of what this team is. So hopefully we can see that tonight against the Clippers or if not later in the week. Yeah, most definitely. Well, Caitlin, thank you for coming on. Of course, as always, a great time. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Of course, be able to I mean, not be able to. You should be able to go follow Caitlin on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. Follow me at Imshinler MBA. Follow Tom over at Indy Cornrows where all of our articles come out. And of course, keep reading us over at, 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 at IC. We have some good stuff coming out. Um, and most importantly, just have a good rest of your day and go Pacers. <laughs>